So several months ago during the Easter season, we started this series on the book of First Peter, and we made it about halfway through before the summer began, which was when we went through the book of First Samuel. And now we're going to take the next several weeks to finish out this letter. And those of you who were here during that time, I know you remember everything that we talked about, but for the sake of those who were not here, we're going to do a little bit of a, a, a reminder or refresher. So 1 Peter is a letter written to the a first generation of Christians. They're living only 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And based on the locations Peter mentions in his introductions, it looks as if this is a circular letter that it would travel around to the various churches that were scattered about what is modern Turkey. So these churches would have been close to the vicinity of the churches around Ephesus, which Paul sent a letter to the churches in Ephesus. There are a couple of themes that dominate this letter. One of these themes is that Peter wants these Christians to know who they are. He wants them to understand the depths of what has happened to them because of God's love. They are people who, in the words of verse 3, have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They have received an inheritance that is fit for royalty, and it is being preserved for them in heaven. They're a kingdom of priests, meaning they are God's own representatives on earth. In their worship, their prayers, and their everyday living, they signal to the world the way to true and abundant life. Peter wants these Christians to know in their gut that they're loved by God, that they're forgiven by Him, and they are being prepared for an end that is certain. And he would want us to know these same things for ourselves. He would want us to reflect deeply on these words from our passage today, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God. But there is this other theme in the letter that makes all these things difficult to believe. You see, the other theme is suffering. These Christians are experiencing a sort of cognitive dissonance in the world. And here's what I mean. They've come to believe that Jesus is king over the world, that he died and rose from the dead to conquer evil, and they see themselves as his servants ambassadors to the true and rightful king. But this has not made their lives any easier. In fact, if anything, it has made their lives more difficult. Their lifestyles have had to change radically. They've had to adopt these new and very unusual habits like loving and praying for their enemies. In a culture that prides itself on Lex Talionis, this eye for an eye. They've had to learn to forgive those who hurt them. They've had to adopt new business practices which prioritize others over themselves. They've had to adopt new rhythms in their lives to prioritize a community of people called the church who, who are considered to be more important than family in a culture in which the immediate family is more important than anything else. 
possibly most strange of all, because they believe Jesus to be king, they no longer pay homage to the human emperor as their neighbors do. They're unwilling to do this. The people of Rome would have considered politics a kind of God. And the Christians will no longer do this. And all of this has made them appear strange in the eyes of the outside world. Not only strange, it's made them appear to be a threat to the status quo. Why do these people behave in this way? Are they trying to change everything about our world? Christians carry out their lives surrounded by suspicion and gossip. And this is the strange tension that all Christians of every era are called to live in. We live in a world in which God has claimed victory through the cross of Jesus, and yet we still suffer. Now, of course, there are different types of suffering in the world. There's the suffering of sickness, of chronic pain, of disease and death, which is part of the brokenness of our world. Then there's the suffering we experience when we make bad decisions and we have to endure the consequences. That is a specific type of suffering. But then, and there are others that we could mention, but the suffering Peter speaks to is that of those who do good but are chastised for it. Now, this morning we're picking up with one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. There's this bit about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison. And the church throughout history has always had trouble understanding what this means. You might have heard the line used before about Jesus having descended into hell during the three days in which he was in the tomb and before he rose from the dead. And this is one of the scriptural places that's appealed to for this belief. Martin Luther, the man who initiated the Protestant Reformation, I think he knew a fair bit about a fair amount about the Bible. And he said, and that's an understatement. That's a joke. He knew a lot about the Bible. And he said this about this passage. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Now, of course, a lot of time has passed since Luther's day. He died in 1546. So maybe by now we've got a better idea of what's going on here, right? But one of the leading scholars of today, a devout Christian, N.T. Wright, says nearly the same thing. This passage remains one of the hardest in all early Christian literature. So I have pretty low expectations for today, and I hope you do too. Now, there are some mysteries here. Absolutely. But whenever we face difficult passages like this, it's helpful to zoom out for perspective, okay? So verses 17 of chapter 3 and chapter 4, verse 1, they function as bookends to the passage and they keep us tuned in to Peter's main point. So verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whatever might be obscure in this passage, which there are some things that are obscure, we can't lose the big picture. Peter's overall purpose is to prepare Christians for what to do in the midst of suffering. Particularly, suffering for what he calls doing good. Now, I think we can unpack the passage by looking at three ways Peter prepares us for suffering. 
So one, we will look at embracing the sufferings of Christ. Two, we will look at anticipating the victory of Christ. And three, we will look at how we are called to remember our baptism as the image for all of life. So first, we learn to suffer by embracing the sufferings of Christ. Listen again to what Peter says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is a core element to what Christians call the gospel, the good news. That Jesus suffered for us when we didn't deserve it. And that His suffering is the means of our redemption. His suffering has rescued us. And this is why the central symbol for the Christian faith, the cross, is a symbol of suffering. We could spend a lot of time talking about how exactly this works. How Jesus' suffering redeems us, rescues us. We could get into lots of weeds about this, but this morning I'm just going to summarize it by using a quote by C.S. Lewis in his wonderful lectures that were produced into a book called Mere Christianity. Here's what Lewis says. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that His death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, He disabled death itself. This is Christianity. This belief about Jesus should be at the very center of your life. The very center of all of your life. That Jesus died for you when you did not deserve it. This act by Jesus tells you about who God is, but also about who you are. That God is good and that He loves you. That you are sinful and yet you're still worthy of love. Jesus' death was a display of God's love. And when you center your life around it, it will rescue you from yourself and from your failures. Now, Jesus' suffering was without a doubt unique in that it was this one-off payment for our sin and the, the evil in our world. And there's this promise in the resurrection that sin and death have been swallowed up. But what are we to do about the fact that the world is still full of evil and suffering? Many of us experience it every day in our families, in our work. We, we encounter evil and suffering in some way. And it's easy to become callous and say, oh, that's just the way the world is. That's not how the Bible deals with it. It doesn't resort to this kind of cynicism about life. That's just the way the world is. Peter presents Jesus as our salvation, but that's not all Jesus is. Jesus is also our example for redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. None of the early Christians were so naive as to think that we could now experience a life free from suffering. You know, it's interesting that you don't find any prosperity gospel preachers in the early church like you find in the modern world. Instead, in the early church, you would hear of people saying things like this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You don't hear many American Christians latching on to that one, do you? 
Peter is telling us a secret at the heart of our lives. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, while they were unique, are also the pattern for how we are called to live. We're to embrace suffering and trust that on the other side, God is going to bring redemption through our suffering. What does this mean? It means there will be occasions when Christians take heat for doing good. You should expect this. It could mean you take heat because you have conservative beliefs about abortion, something like this. Or it could mean you take heat because you care for the poor. It could mean that in doing the right thing in your job, you've got to take heat because the company is going to make a little bit less money, something like this. Whatever the situation might be, when it happens, what Christians are called to is not to react in the predictable ways of the world. We have to look to Jesus as our example. We should be willing to suffer, to endure mistreatment. But we should also trust in this that God is going to bring a form of redemption and resurrection through our sufferings. This is redemptive suffering. Now, you might call this a battle tactic through which God wins the battle in the world against evil. So so the most recent movement I'm aware of that employed this tactic is the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was shaped by the idea that nonviolent suffering love is always redemptive. Nonviolent suffering love is always redemptive. So to combat systemic racism and violence, there were men, women, and children who marched through the streets of cities like Birmingham while firemen and police threatened to turn on fire hoses and release police dogs. And some of them were killed in this. But eventually, the power of singing children would overcome hatred and there were firemen who would refuse to turn on their hoses to hurt children again, even though their superiors were telling them to. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he addressed African Americans whom he said had been battered by the storms of persecution. And he told them, you have been veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Micah Edmondson is this African-American Presbyterian pastor. And he's a scholar of the civil rights movement. And he says that Martin Luther King Jr.'s understanding of the creative power of suffering, unearned suffering, that it goes back directly to the cross of Jesus. The power of unearned suffering is the power to bring about redemptive transformation, not only in the person who suffered. So this isn't just about us. It's not as if we should wallow in self-pity in our suffering. But it has the power also to, to transform the one who inflicts the suffering when we're willing to take it. So Peter's telling us that if you're put in a situation to suffer for doing any kind of good, you should embrace the sufferings of Jesus. This is a way in which you can grow closer to Jesus because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And as you do this, you also need to be mindful, hopeful, that Jesus' sufferings always lead to the resurrection. 
Look, there's no cross without the resurrection in the story of Jesus. In the same way that there's no resurrection without the cross, there is no cross without the resurrection. The resurrection is always close behind. So here's our second point. We learn to suffer by anticipating the victory of Jesus. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, says Peter, but he was made alive in the spirit. This made alive in the spirit is one way that the Bible speaks to Jesus's resurrection. The inner life, the breath of God that goes out of a person at death is breathed back into a person through the resurrection. So the word for spirit in the Bible is the same word for breath or wind, right? And the spirit is this animating force of a human being. It enables us to live and move and have our being. This is why in the words of uh, the uh, poet in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. And so in the resurrection, Jesus is made alive again in the spirit. His dead body is reanimated by God's power. And then in verse 22, we're also told that Jesus has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. What Peter's doing is he's immersing us in a narrative that's completely contradictory to the eyes of the world, that suffering even unto death is going to give way to victory. This is the narrative of Jesus. And it's the narrative that we live into when we believe in Jesus. That suffering, even into death, is going to give way to victory. This is what happened with Jesus on the cross and then the resurrection and then in His ascension. And this same thing is going to happen to us too. However low we go in life now because of struggles, we are going to be raised up higher because of Jesus' resurrection power. And we need to hold on to this so that we're not calloused by suffering. Look, if we can't imagine some victory on the other side of it, we're going to become resentful because of suffering and we will become cynics. Our suffering, we have to believe, is going to lead to the victory of Jesus. Now, I want to try to make some sense of this issue of Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Now, there is this notion that Jesus went to hell for three days between his crucifixion and resurrection. You might have heard this other term called the harrowing of hell. This is the idea that Jesus was in hell and he was uh, releasing these spirits from the prison of hell. But, but this doesn't quite work with this passage. Because whatever's happening is happening after Jesus' resurrection when he's made alive in the spirit. Now, Who are these spirits? What is the passage talking about? Here's some local knowledge you should have about this area of Turkey that Peter's writing to. Noah was a sort of local hero in this area of Turkey. Legend had it that the ark, Noah's ark, had come to rest on this peak nearby. And so the Genesis stories surrounding Noah were imprinted on everyone's imagination from childhood. If you went to the touristy center in these communities, it was all about Noah and where you could go to see the place that the ark supposedly landed. Now, one part of the Noah story is this odd bit about a time when the sons of God produced offspring with the daughters of men. And it resulted in these dark, quasi-human forces who were wreaking havoc on the earth. 
Jews believed that these offspring were a form of spiritual darkness and that they were the offspring of fallen angels. They were essentially pawns of Satan himself. And they were behind a lot of the darkness that happens in the world. Now, this might sound odd to our modern ears, but we shouldn't think this too odd. Because there are invisible forces of evil around us. Forces of Satan that continue to wreak havoc among us. And this is what they were accounting for. So what does Jesus proclaim to these spirits? Jesus proclaims a final victory over evil. That the days of darkness are numbered. Their end is nigh. Most importantly, why is Peter telling them about this? Well, the people he's speaking to are being confronted with their own experience of evil and sin. Can you imagine what it was like to be Noah? You're told to build this boat and it's going to take you years to do it. And all around you are hecklers saying, what are you doing? What's rain? This is essentially what the people in Peter's day were experiencing as they chose to follow Jesus. Now, we in our culture are confronted with other experiences of evil. And Peter is essentially telling them, look, God saved Noah. God confirmed that Noah was right. And Jesus is victorious over these powers of darkness. He's going to save you too. Don't give up on God. God was patient then, and He's patient now too, even with those who do evil. So when you're struggling, anticipate the victory of Jesus. Now, this is how Martin Luther... I realize that I'm quoting Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin Luther in the same sermon, and this is confusing. This one's Martin Luther, the one from the 1500s. He was able to write this line from the song that we sang earlier because he believed this. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. To suffer ourselves... We have to learn to embrace Jesus' suffering and to anticipate His victory. And now to close off the passage, Peter's going to give us an image. Verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to the way God saved Noah, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying is that baptism is a picture of our entire lives in this world. So think about the two major events that involved water in the Old Testament. There was the flood in which the wicked were destroyed, but God in His mercy saved Noah and his family. Then there was the Red Sea. The Egyptians were closing in on God's people. They were ready to destroy them. But God parted the waters and gave them a way of escape. And as they reached the other side, the waters closed in to drown the Egyptians who were on their tail. Now, in one sense, it would be exciting to be on God's side in all of this. You know, to be Noah and his family or to be the Israelites escaping the Egyptians. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be exciting to be on the other side of it, would it? But truthfully, to be on either side is risky. Like, I mean, Noah and his family, you narrowly escape and you're watching. And then if you're the Israelites escaping the Egyptians and you're wondering, they're right on our tail. Are we going to be able to get away? 
Part of what Peter's getting at in this section is that baptism is always this two-sided coin. Follow me. The most powerful image is Paul when he says we are buried with Christ in baptism. In other words, we are dying to our old selves, just like the evil people in Noah's day or the Egyptians. What we deserve is death. But in baptism, God has rescued us from death. He's rescued us from our sins. And we are raised up with Christ in his resurrection so that we can be a new kind of people. What Peter is saying is that your baptism wasn't just like taking a bath. It wasn't. It wasn't merely to wash some dirt off of you. No, it is a statement about the kind of person you are called to be. You wish to escape a life that's moving toward death. You wish to belong to God and you want to live a new life before Him. That's what your baptism says about you. Now, there are a lot of us who've been baptized and who don't think about our baptism very often. It it could be that our baptism was uneventful or it could be it was so long ago, maybe you were even an infant and you can't remember it. You need to know that your baptism still means a lot to God. It was a defining moment in the heavens and in the heart of God. You were saved by him. He committed himself to you through your baptism. He has committed himself to you to continually draw you out of a life of death and toward new life. He loves you so much that he's committed to dealing with your sin and your brokenness and to making you into a new person. And so to close this off, let me ask you, are you living into your own baptism? Are you dying to yourself and to the ways of the world and growing into a new person who is more like Jesus? And if you haven't been baptized, you need to ask yourself, why not? Baptism is this watery gateway into the church and into faith in God. So won't you consider this? Now, in a few moments, we're going to come to the table. And when we do, we're coming as God's baptized people. We have narrowly escaped death because of the sufferings of Jesus. And we embrace these sufferings as we receive his body and blood. But we also anticipate Christ's victory. As we shout the mystery of faith in our Eucharistic liturgy, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Which means we will join with him in his resurrection power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.